speak of the ancient wisdom, the understanding that God is the great architect. There's these primordial waters, and they covered up the mountains, and God separated the waters and spread, let dry ground come up, let earth bring forth life. God is the one that makes everything that is good happens, and we can trust that, and we need to give thanks to the Lord, right? And then Job, who is blameless and upright and in all ways righteous, gets tested, and he loses everything. He loses his family, he loses his wealth, he loses his crops, he loses his animals, he loses his health. And in all that, he maintains his righteousness until his so-called comforters show up. And then for six days, they do a really good job of comforting Job. And by that I mean they didn't open their mouths. They just took Job's hand and held it. Then on day seven, they said, so what'd you do? You know, you must have brought this on yourself. And Job listens to them, and he argues with them, and this whole middle part of the book is his dissertation on, on, on why terrible things happen. And finally, Job just says, I've had it. I've done nothing wrong. I am blameless. I will take my complaint. I will put it on my head. I will wear it like a crown, and I will call God, and God will stand before me, and I will make God my complaint, and God will have nothing to respond because I am a righteous man with integrity. I have done nothing. You talk about the great architect. Let me tell you what I see. I see the innocent suffer. I see the poor getting crushed. I see those with integrity getting stomped on by those who have no integrity. God, you show up and let me address my complaint to you. Yeah, so if you've heard about the, um, the long-suffering Job, the patience of Job, that lasts exactly two chapters. There's like 36 chapters after that where there's absolutely no patience whatsoever. He arrives where most of us arrive. And then God shows up, and God doesn't say, okay, you're suffering, let me address your points one, two, three, and four. If God had rationally addressed suffering, would that have made a difference? When you are suffering and somebody says, well, really God is righteous and not to blame, has that ever worked for you? Has that ever made you feel even a little bit better? I have heard people say things in hospitals and to people who are grieving, someone who lost a child. I have seen and heard things that are so horrific, they are a good argument for handgun control. Because if the person who was suffering had had one, they would have pulled it out and used it. We say dumb things in times of suffering and crisis. There is a great line. How many of you have heard, seen The Princess Bride? It's a movie. 
Buttercup and Wesley are in love, and it's a great love story. Wesley goes off, and Buttercup thinks he's dead, and Wesley actually comes back sneakily as he's disguised, and he kidnaps her, and he's trying to find out whether she's been faithful to his memory. And so he's dragging her around, and he's making all these accusations at her, and she says, you mock my pain. And he says, life is pain, Highness. Those who say otherwise are selling something. Life is pain, and what happens to Job is he goes from keeping his integrity and realizing, shall we receive the good at God's hand and not receive the bad, to, wait a minute, I've been good and I shouldn't receive the bad. And the question here is, is that how God weighs it? And the other thing is, what about, is it possible even that God suffers with us? The great uh, psychologist Carl Jung said the world is God's suffering. We see pieces of the world. Our husband uh, falls, goes to the hospital, is sick, comes back, and during that time, our sense of vision goes to this, as it should, because that's what we care about. But God's vision is never this. God's vision is never just the people in these pews, thank God. God's vision and care is this. And God is probably more in pain about what's going on than we are. And we only focus on our own pain and we get debilitated by it. Richard Rohr had a great um, talk column article about this, and he talked about how the cross is kind of a universal Jungian archetype, because as you look at the cross, you realize that this is what God does. God's arms are always spread out. God doesn't say, I'm done with the suffering. I haven't done anything. But it's, this is what the world is. This is what the world does. How do we respond then? If you have lived in the world, you will have had your dark night of the soul. You may be having it right now. What do we do? Do we go before God and say, I've had it, I've had enough, this isn't fair, I want it to end now? Or do we realize suffering is our lot in life in a lot of ways. And it's what we do with that suffering that makes a difference. How do we respond. God comes to Job in the whirlwind. <clears throat> Excuse me. Were you there when the mountains were formed? Were you there when I set the limit? Can you feed the lion? Can you give the raven 
It's food. Can you do any of these things? Speak to me. Surely you know you've been talking nonstop for 36 chapters. You obviously have a lot to say. Let me hear it. And what people rightly understand about that text is God coming out of the whirlwind is that God really does overwhelm Job. And quite frankly, that's probably as it should be. Some people like to take God and put it on a bumper sticker. God hates fags, right? That's the totality of one church's understanding of the great mystery of the universe. God hates fags. If you can get that, then you can go home. How many of you think that encapsulates anything to do with God? Even if you are on that side of the aisle, surely God must be more than that. I think one of the problems that we have in church is we have tried to simplify things. We've tried to give people answers. We've tried to make things fit on a bumper sticker so that people can take them home, make them feel comfortable, make them feel at ease, and then they intuitively understand that the mystery of the universe, the deep mystery, has got to be bigger than that. And if we are not proclaiming the great mystery and the fact that suffering happens and that people suffer and people come into our churches, and I had, I, the saddest thing that ever happened to me as a pastor, a woman came into church and she said, you know, I met you, I really liked you, but you were very happy and you seemed to have your life together and I didn't think you would be able to understand. I didn't, everybody looked happy, everybody looked like they belonged in church and I felt like I didn't belong. I was hurting. I was aching. I was naked. I was sick. I was in prison. And I didn't think that there was a place for me in the church. This was not this church. This was another church. And I told her, boy, we put on a great facade because I could tell you 36 stories of people who are in deep and abiding pain right now in our congregation. But we put on a happy face. So put on a happy face. So that everyone will talk to us and no one will be depressed when they look at us. In the meantime, we're dealing with these existential crises and pains in our lives. Elie Wiesel, after the Holocaust, I don't know if you know the story of Elie Wiesel. Elie Wiesel was... A, he went through the Holocaust, and he's a Nobel laureate and writer, <clears throat> great thinker. But he was a very religious young man. And there were four of them who were part of that Hasidic tradition where they believed that if you lived an absolutely pure life, you could bring the Messiah. If you lived an absolutely pure life, if you followed, there's, we talked about the Ten Commandments and, and how hard it is to follow the Ten Commandments. There are 613 Levitical codes. That's just Leviticus. And they thought if they lived pure lives, they could bring the Messiah. Not only did they not bring the Messiah, but the Holocaust happened, and people said if God isn't going to come during the Holocaust, what possible event would bring God? After the Holocaust, Wiesel says that he doesn't believe in God because it makes sense. 
He believes in God because without God, his life does not make sense. When you are Job and you are listening to what comes out of the whirlwind, you are left with the fact that God doesn't make sense in that moment. All you get is this brute power and this suffering and this wow. But Job understood that without God, his life did not make sense. And so he goes on, and the end of the story has him being blessed, as if that could make up for all the things that happened in the beginning. But when we are in the dark night of the soul, I want you to remember that God suffers too. God suffers with us. God is there in every moment of our pain, and every moment of our pain is everyone's pain. We see it individually, but that's God's pain. And God does heal it. And when we can participate in that healing, like Job, we can move beyond and then just love. Because that's what we're called to do. The proper response to suffering is not to give up, not to get angry, and you're allowed to do both. But ultimately, don't give up. Keep loving. Because that's what God does. God's arms are always out, and God never stops loving. And that's good news. Amen.